0: Hi, Barbara. Thanks so much for being with me.
1: Hi, it's great to be here.
0: I wanted to start with what I believe to be perhaps one of your most exciting moments of your life, and that was when you were made an officer of the Order of the British Empire back in 2009. And, of course, this is a tremendous accomplishment. It's one of the highest civilian honors you can receive in the United Kingdom. I want you to take us back to the investiture ceremony with prince charles in 2010 and walk us through the emotions of that moment how did you feel
1: <laughs> i have a i have a i have a vivid memory of my feet hurting because i bought these really fancy shoes so i could look my best at my investiture but yeah. buckingham palace is a very large space so i ended up walking quite a bit so I have very of feet. I mean, look, it's a thrilling moment. It was such an honor, I have to say, especially because as we all know or we should know, these things are never individual efforts alone. There's always, you're always part of a team. So it wasn't just me, it was feeling like I was accepting it on behalf of my team and, and all of my colleagues. But I had my parents with me, it was a real thrill to, to make them proud. They've been a hugely supportive set of parents. When I told them I was deploying to Iraq, they kind of yeah, said, okay, we'll support you. And I could tell they weren't thrilled. So yeah, and normally the queen does the investitures, but of course she's getting on. And so it was, it was Charles and I have met Prince Charles in other capacities in my work with the British government, but it was very nice to meet him again in that capacity.
0: Yeah. I'm sure it was a a seminal moment in your life. And I also came across the, the Bowdoin common good award. And this is another really exciting award that I'm sure meant a lot to you. For a bit of background for our listeners, that's an award created in part due to your example as an alumnus of the school who had gone into a a set of work, not for prestige or money considerations necessarily, but because of your innate concern for the common good and for advancing social causes in the world. So I'm curious what you tell people based on your commitment to social impact and common good, who want to do good in the world, but are perhaps more motivated by considerations like money, prestige, and things like that. What sorts of advice do you give those people on how to balance those competing motivations in their life?
1: Yeah, that it's an interesting one, Matt, because I'm not absolutely convinced that you have to give up money and prestige to, to do good in the world. You you may give up as much earning <laughs> earning power as you might receive in some situations. But I also believe that that work in the private sector, depending on how companies operate, there, there, there are very many, very enlightened companies that are actually using their value chains and their ability to create jobs and wealth and, and have impact for the common good. So it's not its not an automatic trade-off. You either go into the public sector and you give up the prestige and the salary, or you go into the private sector <laughs> and you you get the salary and the prestige. I do think it's possible to, <clears throat> to marry those things but it, it, I think it depends what moves you. I mean, I've been moved by the common good, but I, I've, just, I've been also moved by having impact, wanting my life to have meaning and impact. And, and yeah. the most meaningful way I could find was to do things for the common good. But that led me into a life of, of, of public service, the bulk of my career, basically working with government and feeling like that gave me a platform to have genuine impact at scale. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: But everybody's different and you can have impact in, I wanted to have global impact. You can have impact in a community that is just as meaningful and in many respects, more tangible and rewarding, I think, than the path that I chose. But I wouldn't, I think the bottom line is I don't think there's an automatic trade-off I'm not rolling in wealth, but I've, I'm very satisfied and very have been very lucky. Mm.
0: I I loved the quote you said: "Genuine impact at scale," because I think that is something so many people want, and I I think they go about life or they grow up perhaps thinking that while that is one of their top goals, they think they have to sacrifice in order to make enough money to feel comfortable or have the reputation they desire. So I I really like your answer about how it's not necessarily a trade-off. And I think that's a really great point. I wanted to latch on to what you brought up about government work and sort of skip ahead because it's a great transition. For our listeners, of course, you were in the British government for, what was it, 16 years? and then you were a senior appointee with the U.S. Agency for International Development for a couple years. So you've held really impactful roles, you could say, in both the British and American governments. I think that's a really cool story, just being in the top levers of two different governments. I think very few people have been in that position. So I wanted to ask you what you find to be the benefits of working in government versus the private sector versus the nonprofit sector talk to us a little bit about what you found was most fulfilling or compelling about your work in the British or American governments towards solving global challenges like the environment
1: yeah i mean i haven't worked in the private sector although i've worked with the private sector a lot so so i i'm not an expert there i think I think that if you have an opportunity to work in government and and work with, let's say, an enlightened government that wants to make progressive change, and you're lucky enough to find yourself in a position to have a significant amount of responsibility and authority in that government, you, you have an enormous platform. Both those governments, the British government and the US government, you when you speak as a senior official of those governments you can really change policy globally. You can collaborate with other member states to bring about genuine transformational change. And that, that has been, that's a real privilege actually. It's, I've been very lucky to find somehow have found my way into those opportunities. It's not, just because you want to do good in the world doesn't mean it's easy to do good in the world to find the right ways to do it. But I managed to find my way into a series of opportunities that that really enabled me to do that. So, um, yeah, I think it. I think governments, particularly governments of the global north, command a huge amount of power and resource, and like it or not, they're in a position to actually set the global agenda. So if you sit on one of those platforms, you can really affect change.
0: Absolutely. For our listeners, I wanted to follow up to that about asking about the leadership lessons you've learned in government, because you were, you were a senior official in both governments and, and, you say that you found yourself in in a favorable position, but I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the, the qualities that you cultivated over time and your ability to empower yourself to be in a position to do good within these very large and complex systems. Because on the one hand, government is a simple premise. You have a lot of resources and you can do a lot of good. But at the same time, these are incredibly complex organizations that I'm sure are difficult at times to rise within. So what sorts of leadership lessons did you learn, whether in in British government or the American government, about empowering yourself to lead in these large, very perhaps confusing, uh, sometimes bureaucratic government organizations? Yeah, it's,
1: Probably two important ones, I think. I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the roles I've had have been leading departments that engage on behalf of both the UK and then the US government with the rest of the international system. And so trying to influence a whole range of other stakeholders. And I think you get a head start because you're already sitting on a powerful platform, but then you actually have to be credible Right. Uh, you have to genuinely either know the issue that you're talking about or know who to ask the intelligent questions to. That's very important. And to not presume that you do more than you do. There's nothing that undercuts your authority more than trying to look like you do things that you don't. It's actually empowering to say, hang on a minute, I'm, I'm not cited on that issue. Can you take me through it? That's actually quite a powerful thing to say. The other thing you have to do is you have to take people where they are. It's very interesting. In, In the environment space, I have a lot of colleagues who are passionate about the environment and about the planetary crises we're facing, and they see what needs to happen. But what you have to do is build a bridge from where people are what needs to happen. You can't just throw the end game at them. You can't just give them the aspiration. You have to actually build on where they are. Take people where they are, not where you want them to be. And then the, the, the last thing is we have all these aspirations. We know what the world, where we want to move the world. Fantastic. A lot of people can come up with aspirations What is the practical next step that we need to take? What do we need to do Monday morning? Don't tell me that I need to transition my economy to a carbon neutral economy. What is it in this economy I need to do Monday morning? What's the first step? And then maybe what's the second step? Get people started on the journey. Don't just give them the destination.
0: That makes me think back to an earlier interview we did with Mark Reynolds, who's the executive director of Citizens Climate Lobby. And he very much said what you said about having humility. And that I think is, it sort of encapsulates the first point you made, knowing what you don't know. For him, he phrased it more as being deeply committed to the process of listening to other people to understand the different complexities of of whatever you're working on and to approach the most effective path forward based not on just your experience, but on the collective experience of everyone around you. So I think that is wise observation. And on the second point about building a bridge from where people are to what needs to happen. I think that's a good transition to diving deeper into your work as a senior diplomat and negotiator because I was reading about your role with the UN financing for development agenda and also how you helped implement. You were the co-leader for the UK on implementing the sustainable development goals. And you were, you had similar work with the USAID with the world humanitarian summit, the president's refugee summit. So how do you go about building consensus on environmental issues. I I'm sure part of your answer is building that bridge and you've already answered it, but how do you convince government actors that these are important issues that need to be acted upon immediately?
1: It, it's really tough on the environment agenda, and particularly the climate agenda, because it becomes so politicized. Yeah. So, all you need to do is say the word climate change and you're immediately into, you have the potential to get bogged down in sort of ideological and politicized and very divisive debates. So one of the things that that we've been doing as the UN Environment Program in North America is, is really trying to focus on the practicalities. What are the practical problems that communities face? How do you engage, for example, mayors along the Mississippi River to care about plastic pollution, Mm. to care about the impacts of climate change. Some of those mayors don't even want to utter the the C word. But as soon as you get into the questions of how can your communities become more resilient when you have your next flood event or your next drought, as soon as you get to the practical level, actually the politics begin to fall away and you can start Mm. to build a consensus around solving practical problems that people face. Policymakers always want to solve problems. That's what they're there for. So the extent that you can be problem solving and practical, you can try to avoid some of that. But there's always going to be politics. You have to understand and respect that different actors in a negotiation have different interests than yours. And you need to recognize and acknowledge those interests and, and kind of get under the skin of them to figure out, okay, what's the nugget where our interests actually overlap yeah and then how can we build on that?
0: Great. Thank you. I now want to transition to, of course, your work at the UN environment program, because I am, I'm really excited to speak to you because I think the United Nations is so understood yet so misunderstood. And because on the one hand I think everyone sort of knows that the UN has a large role in many different policy issues globally, but at the same time it can be sort of a black box in terms of what the UN does, where its powers lie or don't lie. So Asking sort of a a more basic question, what does your work at UN Environment Program North America consist of on on a daily basis in terms of tackling environmental issues?
1: Yeah, the UN is a complicated entity. Uh, so, So UN Environment Program, we're the part of the UN system that leads on environment and climate issues. And that ranges from chemicals and waste to energy to marine resources to air pollution to how do you build a circular economy how do you how do you transition from what we call a take make dispose linear kind of economy which is responsible for the depletion of our natural resources and the destruction of our ecosystems to one where we produce things that continue to have value over many different life cycles and don't end up in the environment. So what we do is we, for North America, we cover the U.S. and Canada, and we take that agenda and we engage federal, state, and local governments. As the U.N., we're primarily an intergovernmental organization. Governments are our clients. They're our Mm. board of directors, if you like. But we also do a lot of convening using the, the U.N. brand, to bring governments together with other stakeholders to see how you can create coalitions to push agendas forward. Mm -hmm. So for example, bringing big companies together with governments to think about how can we tackle the plastic pollution crisis that we're facing, which is literally choking our oceans. By the way, our oceans generate 70% of the oxygen that we breathe if we choke our oceans. It, 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 we're cooking ourselves yeah. but how do we do that how can you create how can you convene people from different constituencies together to get a forward momentum that's a lot of what we do that's a lot of what the UN is very good at we can convene and even in North America where the politics haven't always been easy people really appreciate being convened on a UN platform hmm
0: I think, in a lot of the conversations I've had about what's the best way to tackle environmental issues, oftentimes, the bottom line is that government action is the most important step, and that's sort of the argument that I've heard a lot is every actor has a role to play private citizens, the private sector, the nonprofit sector. But when we look to create the most lasting change, the most swift and impactful measures, that often comes down to national governments passing legislation or passing regulations of some sort. And in my mind, I think the type of organization like the UN that works to create government action is really important. And so how do you compare actually going into national government to try to be the change from within. Of course, you were in that role for many years. How do you compare that to working for an agency like the UNEP, which sort of tries to compel government to change itself from the outside as an outside actor trying to create external pressure? How do you square those two? Are there benefits to one of those over the other? What where do those experiences differ in your mind?
1: I mean, they're, they're really complementary. It, it's very interesting. When I my first meeting with my State Department colleagues in my role as a UN official, it, it was hilarious because I was on the other side of the equation only a matter of <laughs> months before being on right. the receiving end of, of what my UN colleagues were saying. I mean, they're complementary. You know, we, we as the UN system... our our club of member states. Our job is to convene, put the science in front of governments and say, here are the things that we need to do. But we can't do the doing. That has Mm -hmm. to be the member states. And so the member states, on the other hand, can't always be the ones to convene and bring all governments together to get us all moving in a direction. And not governments can't always do all of the science. They can't always do the global lesson learning. So, so they're complementary. I mean, our whole sort of system of global government governance is premised on individual member states working with structures of intergovernmental institutions like the UN, like the World Bank, like the IMF. So they're mm-hmm. kind of two sides of the same coin. But I will say that I'm very glad I came to the UN after having worked in government because I really understand how it works and I'm not trying to influence government policy through without really under, without having been somebody who makes government policy. So having that kind of insider knowledge is is really helpful
0: in the work that we do. Wonderful. I think a lot of our listeners who are young adults who want to go into the environment, they look at an organization like the UN and think this is, this is great. This is something I want to do because government action is really important on climate. And the UN is playing a central role in bringing governments together, building coalitions, as you said. And so I I think a lot of young adults, as part of this new generation who want to help solve environmental issues may look to the UN as a very compelling path. So how can listeners become leaders in, in the UN or in intergovernmental work in general? What path, I mean, do you recommend your particular path to becoming a, a senior official in the United Nations do you, you, you said that working in government work helps you appreciate both sides of the coin. Just how do you, how do you advise young adults who, who want to do the kind of work you do to, to make the biggest difference?
1: I mean, if I'm really honest, I would say go and get some experience before you go work for the UN. What you want to do is bring experience to the UN because you will get some of it in the UN but but a lot of what you'll get in the UN is sitting in rooms negotiating yeah or sitting in, in meetings bringing to bear all of that experience and, and knowledge that you got in, in in other areas and and I would say the best thing you can do go out and get experience depending on what you want to do if you want to work in a very technical area then go get the technical qualifications mm-hmm. and expertise. If you want to work, for example, in international development or peace building, go, go out and volunteer with a non-government organization. Go and really understand what it looks like on the ground and then bring that to a job at the UN. Because you won't necessarily get it when you get to the UN. And actually when I'm hiring and I look at young people's resumes, the people who have that experience, it are have much, they really have a have a head start on those who don't.
0: That's great advice. And that makes total sense. I'll jump ahead now to the question I often ask our guests, which is about how listeners can contribute to environmental solutions in the span of a single day. Because I think a lot of people, (laughs) and whether you believe that's even possible, but I think a lot of people in the world want to help solve climate change. They want to help build a more sustainable future, but they may not be ready to commit to a a long-term path that, that puts them in a, a senior position that helps them do that in a, in a big way. So moving down to a smaller scale, like in the span of a single day, what sorts of things do you tell people are most effective at helping solve environmental issues?
1: First of all, you do not have to follow a path like I have followed to, to, to have an impact on environmental issues. Absolutely not. There were two young girls, sisters, eight and 13 years old in Bali who were so disgusted at the amount of plastic in their environment. They started a campaign. Two years later, the government of Bali has banned single use plastics. Wow. I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> Citizens have impact. Mm -hmm. So what can you do? Wake up in the morning and write letters to your representatives, particularly your state legislators, not just your congresspeople in Washington, but your state legislators who have huge influence over what happens to the waste in your state, what the policies are regarding how methane emissions can be regulated write letters and and make your voice known. If it weren't for all of those Chinese citizens who wrote to their governments and raised their voices and said, you know what? We're tired of not being able to breathe the air in Beijing. We're tired of not being able to see our hand in front of our face. We're tired of our kids getting asthma. That's what led the Chinese government to to enact very progressive policies on industrial transformation and clean energy. wasn't wasn't out of the goodness of their hearts. It was citizen pressure. So don't underestimate your pressure in that regard. Second thing I would do is when you go to the shop, and I have a particular, I'm a particular kind of Rottweiler on plastic because I just think it's the most unnecessary. We've created this problem. By the way, plastic is made from fossil fuels. So, One of the reasons that there's so much plastic is because it's a way for the fossil fuel industry to kind of have a long tail. Fossil fuels are going to be gone in our future. It's just the curve of history. But plastic demand is going up. So try not to use single-use plastic. Reuse your plastic. But when you go to the store and you get sold something that's wrapped in plastic, say something. You're a consumer. You're not just a citizen writing to your representative. You're a consumer. And believe me, companies that sell hamburgers and soft drinks and products to young people are enormously sensitive to this issue because young people have started to show that they don't want it, that it's, a comp- that it's compromising their future. So make your vo- voice known. And then try to educate yourself about the issues a little bit. There are a lot of ways to to make an impact in your community. There are a lot of ways. Think about your lifestyle. You know, is there anything you can do with your lifestyle that that will actually reduce your impact on the planet? So don't but, but the most important thing is don't assume that these things don't have impact because they really really do.
0: Great. Thank you for that. I will loop back now to, I think, so we've covered some of the general advice you give about going into intergovernment intergovernmental work and the merits of that versus working within a national government like you did in the UK and in the US. I wanted to ask a couple questions about how you think government can work better on environmental issues whether from your perspective within or without at the UN so one question i have is is particular to the unep and the issue of actually enforcing countries commitments to different climate and environmental goals how do you think the unep or other un bodies other intergovernmental bodies should ensure that environmental action isn't just promised, but actually taken? What, what sorts of structural changes do you think should take place and what sort of individual leadership ideas should be latched onto in order to improve and optimize how the UN and other groups actually enforce and encourage these goals to be met?
1: Yeah, it's, it's very, it's an interesting question. What the UN can do, and this is by agreement of all of the member states is set what we call normative frameworks or, or kind of goals. So hopefully Mm -hmm. all of your listeners know what the sustainable development goals are, which were agreed by all of the member states of the United Nations in 2015. And they have goals and they have targets. Now, that's what the UN can do. It can convene member states to come to those agreements. And actually, it's pretty amazing that we, we got agreement on the SDGs. It's a very progressive agenda. But what we, what we can do, what's very difficult outside the context of a formal treaty or, or a formal protocol is to compel member states to do what they have agreed to do. It's very difficult for us to do that. The UN is not set up like that. We are set up to coordinate, to convene, to provide guidance and normative frameworks for how things could go. But it's the individual member states who have the responsibility to implement that. There are some ways in which the UN tries to accompany member states that encourage them. So we have regularly what are called peer reviews, where we invite member states to come forward and talk about how they are implementing the SDGs. For example, what is it that they're doing in their own national context? With the idea being that you kind of create a rush to the top of people wanting to be seen as, as high-performing states. But that's that works to a certain extent. I mean, a side note on that is: don't underestimate how important it is for countries to be seen to be global leaders, be seen to be doing the right thing. No member state of the United Nations wants to be singled out to show that look, your report card is really bad here. <laughs> right?
0: Uh,
1: it, 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 they just don't want that, and political leaders will will go far to avoid that. But we don't really have enforcement mechanisms certainly not as United Nations Environment Program. So we rely, that's why leadership of countries like the United States and Canada is so important because the way you get progress in a situation, in a, in, a, in a structure like that, is you need a critical mass of member states who come together, ideally a combination of the global North and the global South, and say, you know what, the 10 of us are going to pull all the rest of us with us. We're going to move forward and bring everybody along. That's actually how change historically happened in global
0: governance. Mm-hmm. That makes me think about the path that I think a lot of young people want to take, which is running for office in, at different levels. And Presumably you haven't run for office, but you've interacted with a lot of office holders. Or, (laughs) I mean, I don't don't want to assume. Maybe you have. Maybe it didn't make your bio. (laughs) But I'm sure you've interacted with a lot of elected officials and gleaned lessons from them on the sorts of qualities that best serve to create that sort of momentous leadership that fills that gap that the UN has that where it can't enforce these goals. We need leaders in national government to actually be the push to, to create movement on these goals. What sorts of qualities have you found are most effective among elected officials to create lasting environmental change on the scale of a government? And what, do you think listeners who maybe down the line want to run for office should learn from those people you've worked with
1: golly well <laughs> it, it, so it, it depends what kind of office you're thinking about if if you're thinking about okay I want to be a mayor yeah. or I want to be a governor or I want to be an attorney general I mean that's that's very much somebody who who really wants to take executive action and have executive authority? Mm-hmm. If you're running for state legislator or, or House of Representatives, or you want to be a senator, that's a different kind of authority. It, it's, it's partly executive action, but that's also about how do I build consensus? How do I create coalitions for change? To me, it's a complementary but slightly different skill set because the the legislative branch of the U.S. government is founded on the notion of compromise and creating, figuring out how to accept that you're not going to get everything you want. But look, you can move this that little bit forward if you compromise and and collaborate. But not everybody... Not everybody is oriented that way. So you have to decide, do you want to be that kind of person or are you a sort of action Mm -hmm. executive? I want to be the executive of this city and solve the problems and run this and make decisions.
0: What about the environmental ministers that you've worked with? What, What sorts of qualities did they exhibit that you thought were or especially helpful towards not just building consensus between countries, but actually helping them convince people within their country that environmental action was important.
1: Yeah. You've really, so if you're an environment minister, typically you're a little bit low down the pecking order in government. Mm -hmm. It's the environment ministries are not known as the most powerful ministries in government. So you, you might see it as a stepping stone to, to, to a more powerful department. The, gotcha. most, the most powerful environmental ministers are ones that, like any minister, have a combination of huge sort of capacity to process information and make decisions, charm and inf- ability, personal kind of charisma and the ability to take people with them. But also a kind of tolerance for the fact that you're not going to get everything you want and and progress is, is going to be, you're going to really have to invest a lot to possibly achieve a little. I mean, I hope that environment ministries are becoming more influential because... The penny is dropped globally that, uh, okay, Houston, we have a problem here. We have three interlocking planetary crises that are all metastasizing at the same time. And we have maybe 20 years to sort this out. So, So I think environment ministries are beginning to get more power as they should.
0: Yeah. And what are those three crises that you referred to?
1: Let me ask you, Will, can you see if you can name them?
0: Okay. <laughs> so I'm going to say climate change as one. Okay. I I say like sustainable development as sort of a second where it's not so much the short-term pressing climate change issue but the actual long-term challenge of developing sustainably and in harmony with our planet. I view that as number two, even though it, judging by your reaction, that's not number two. <laughs> and number three, I'm not <laughs> sure if specific sort of symptoms of climate change qualify, like um, ocean acidification or deforestation, things like that. But uh, <laughs> it sounds like I got one out of three. <laughs>
1: you no, know, I'm. You, I think you've done I think you've done very well. So the, the way we qualify them so climate clearly we've got to get global temperatures we've got to stop them from rising. We've got to be carbon neutral by 2050. but we also the second one which you kind of alluded to is the massive biodiversity and ecosystem um, collapse that we're mm-hmm. having. So one out of our eight million species are going extinct. Ecosystems that support us are are being degraded and destroyed and collapsed at an an absolutely catastrophic rate. So that's the second one. And the third one is a little bit what I alluded to on plastic pollution. It's, it's, It's pollution and waste. The pollution and waste crisis is also, all these things are interrelated and they all are a reflection of the kind of, model of how we have grown economically, mm-hmm. uh, which has lifted lifted millions of us, but is not, we really have to transition to more sustainable consumption and production.
0: Yeah.
1: So, and the problem is they're all going thermonuclear at the same time.
0: Right. Understood. Thank you for clarifying that.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry to, <laughs> to give you the good news.
0: Yes, <laughs> no, that that was that was great. i I have a few more questions. i I wanted to re- sort of step back from climate change and ask about your humanitarian work and sort of dive into the importance of international aid and development to solving various global challenges, not just climate change. and then and then we'll close with a couple more general questions. So, Referencing your work on the World Humanitarian Summit while you were at USAID, your similar role with the UK Department for International Development, you were head of the Conflict Humanitarian and Security Team at DFID at one point, and and you mentioned that you led some reconstruction work in Iraq for a time. My question... I guess I teed it up without knowing the question, (laughs) but (laughs) I'm curious how you situate humanitarian aid as a possible solution to various global challenges, because the way I view it, giving aid to the most vulnerable is one of the quickest ways and most proven ways to solving a range of global challenges from climate change you're not just reacting to climate change but giving people the means to respond to it more productively issues of global health inequality education access these are all issues that that i really want to cover with boulder and so how do you view the role of humanitarian aid in tackling a range of global challenges not just environmental ones yeah
1: i mean look Humanitarian aid is is critical and will be increasingly so as we face, for example, more and more climate-related disasters, not just in other parts of the world, but here in the United States. People get flooded out from their homes. Uh, There are massive forest fires. There are things where you need a response in the short term to just help people get out of the catastrophic moment and stabilize their lives and their livelihoods. But humanitarian aid is not really, to me, where we should be putting the emphasis. It's the old adage, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So although humanitarian response is absolutely critical, we have to be more concentrated on the upstream solutions Let's try and and avoid the forest fires next time. Let's build more faster, resilient housing and flood defenses. Let's let's support economic and social development in countries so that people don't have to flee and flood over the border and end up in the United States, for example, if, if you look at the amount spent on addressing root causes versus versus the the consequences of, of disasters from those root causes, it's much better to work upstream. But it's the humanitarian stuff that is kind of immediate and tangible and gets the headlines often. So it does tend to be where a lot of the resources go.
0: Right. Yeah. That, that makes me think of the, what I seem, what seems to be a common issue in government, which is convincing people to work on long-term problems that aren't manifesting necessarily currently, but that would prevent a lot of the mess that you're currently in. So I, I think how do you overcome that? It, it seems like I, I would tie it back to the earlier points you made about leadership and and building a bridge to what needs to happen with people. But that that seems in, in other conversations I've had to be a, a recurring theme. Okay, I have a couple closing questions, and I I appreciate you bearing with me with all these questions. I have two more. And they're more general questions, which I think are more fun. Stepping back from the environmental issue and just thinking in terms of social impact and doing good in the world, which has, of course, been a major thread through your life. What do you tell people who want to change the world but who don't know how?
1: It's, it's it's not easy recognize that 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 you're not alone it's yeah. very challenging to figure out how to do good and change the world and and you're lucky if you get the opportunity to do it, it, it that's why i call it a privilege in many respects but i would say pick one thing uh that pick one area maybe it's health care maybe it's education maybe it's international development maybe it's climate change pick one thing and try to dig down into it get that field experience it doesn't mean that that's the thing you're going to do for the rest of your life but you have to have something to bring to the table just having good intentions and wanting to do good isn't going to get us where we need to go you actually need to have the kind of you have to have the stuff You have to have some knowledge, you have to have some experience, you have to be able to understand how to go forward. What is that thing we have to do on Monday morning to solve that particular problem?
0: That's wonderful. And last question, I, I like to ask our guests about their vision for the future. Because presumably, because of your longtime work with environmental and other humanitarian issues that you have some conception of where you hope we will end up based on the UNEP's work, based on environmental work around the world. So to you, what will the world look like if, if and or when the UNEP achieves its goals for the world? Well,
1: well, It'll be a world where we've figured out how to get off our dependency on carbon as a, as a starter for 10. It will be a world where the products that I buy are on their seventh or eighth life and have been repurposed to come back into the environment back into the economy to add value so that I know I'm not using something for 10 minutes and that has taken, degraded our ecosystems and depleted our natural resources and then thrown it away. So it's now doubly a problem because it's waste in the environment. It will be a world where The natural world, the protection and and strengthening of the natural world is so, so much a part of our ideas that we'll be shocked that it ever was a different place, that we ever degraded our forests and our ocean environments and our freshwater systems with impunity, where companies will not be allowed anymore to treat these things as externalities on their, on, their, on their balance sheets. They will be internalities and the true cost of these things will actually be understood and, and, and incorporated into business models. Um, and where actually we're gonna have a future. <laughs> Unless we go this direction, frankly, this is an existential question for us. It's, this is not really optional. The only thing that is, is a question is how long it's going to take us to get there. The longer it takes us to get there, the more collateral damage and the worse it's going to be for us. So how do we, it's a world where we will have gotten over this hump and over this transition. And we'll look back and say, whoa, we came really close to extinction, but somehow we figured out how to cooperate with each other to get there. It's that thing that people are saying about the global pandemic. None of us are safe until all of us are safe. It sounds a bit cheesy, but God, is it true?
0: Yeah. Well, with that, I will bring our conversation officially to a close. Barbara, this was a lot of fun for me. You were our first guest in the intergovernmental space. Your your work with the UNEP is well-respected by me, and I'm sure everyone listening, and please do keep, keep doing good in the world on behalf of, of the US, Canada, the UK, the rest of the world. I'm inspired by your work and all you've done in the environment and other issues. And I'm very excited to have had the chance to speak with you today. So ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Barbara Hendry. Barbara, thank you so much for an inspiring talk today.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great.
0: Absolutely.